tonight I'm joined by Tommy Ballard, who is an optometrist, and at his eye clinic, they call him Dr. Ballard, but I call him Tommy B. <laughs> so welcome, Tommy B. <laughs> uh, we are going to do, I'm going to start, oh, there it is, nice, thank you. Um, we're going to start with a five-minute history lesson. Uh, in the first century AD, for the most of the first century, the Christians and the, the group that was Christians were viewed as a subgroup of Judaism. Jesus, after all, was Jewish, the founder of the way of Jesus. Uh, all of his disciples were Jewish. The Apostle Paul was Jewish. He was even called to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, but he would always start by going first to the Jewish synagogues and talking to the Jewish members of any given community before he'd ever go to non-Jews to talk to them. So the, the early Christian movement was firmly rooted in Judaism. It was this kind of gradual process of the Jewish community realizing how radically different that the way of Jesus was and the followers of Jesus were from Judaism. So, you know, over time, maybe it started, they thought, oh, this is a branch of Judaism. And over time, it might have been more like what uh, the Christian church might view the Church of Mormon as today. Like, we share similar tenets, but there are some drastic differences. So much so that we, we would say... Um, we're not the same. We're not. We're different. We're not the same group. It's not the same thing. So you can imagine, as you know, all of this is happening in the first century, where you're making the shift from, oh, we're all kind of on the same page, to no, wait, we're on drastically different pages. That creates this huge amount of tension, and so much so, as the Jewish community starts to realize, oh, they're saying Jesus is the Messiah, and they're saying that that Gentiles, non-Jews can be a part of the people of God, that persecution starts to break out. And the Jewish community gets really frustrated with followers of Jesus about that. So much so that in AD 49, in Rome, the Roman Emperor Claudius issues this edict that expels all of the Jews from Rome. Roman historian Suetonius recorded, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, Claudius expelled them from Rome. That may be a reference to Christ and the Christ community in Rome. During this time, the Apostle Paul actually met a couple that had been kicked out of Rome and sent to Corinth. He was in Corinth and he met Aquila and Priscilla. And Acts 18 says they were in Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius. So it's corroborated in Scripture. I imagine that Aquila and Priscilla told Paul all about some of the tensions and the drama um, in the, the Roman church. It's like the real housewives of Italy or something like that. I mean, there's, this, there's, a, there's a great uh, turmoil in the church there. So the Jewish Christians are kicked out, but then um, the Emperor Claudius passes away in AD 54. And when, when an emperor passes away, his imperial edicts pass away with him. So that means five years later, all of the Jews can come back, the Jewish community can come back to Rome. And when they do, you can imagine some, some Jewish Christians, they come back to the church and they realize, oh wow, 
This, the church is a lot different than when we left it. There, there are non-Jewish leaders in the church now, and they're doing all of these things that we would never do as Jewish leaders. I mean, they're not following the Mosaic Law. They, like, they, they have different worship services. Uh, this, is, this is kind of crazy. And so this big brouhaha kind of comes about. I mean, there's all kinds of turmoil and tension and fighting, and it's into this very situation in AD 56 or 57, just right after the Jewish community comes back into Rome and Jewish Christians come back into the church that had been predominantly Jewish up to that point, and they discover all this stuff. And so Paul spends most of his energy in the letter to the Romans navigating the tension between the Jewish faction and the non-Jewish Gentile faction of the church. So you can imagine, perhaps... uh, Perhaps in, in Romans 5, when we read about suffering and Paul saying, rejoice in your sufferings, maybe this is some of the backdrop that's in his mind when he's talking about when you experience turmoil, when you experience suffering, the thing that was fresh on all of their minds, the backdrop there was this great turmoil within their church, within, from the Jewish community toward the Christian church. When you experience suffering, Paul says, rejoice. Paul had a strange perspective on suffering that it's something we should celebrate. It has redemptive potential somehow to create character and endurance and hope. Well, from all that uh, history that we just heard about, it's pretty obvious that life was pretty hard for those early Christians um, even though they were followers of Christ, and you could probably say even because they were followers of Christ, they had more than their share of suffering. And you know there had to be some discontent in the ranks uh, of the churches. When they get back together after they come back to, uh, to Rome, there had to be some stuff, some turmoil going on. The Gentile Christians, I'm sure, sitting there thinking to themselves, you know, why is all this happening? Um, none of this used to happen when I was sacrificing to the gods of Rome. And now that I'm following Jesus, all this trouble is happening. You know, at least back then, the government people left me alone. There was no hassle. The Jewish Christians are sitting there saying to themselves, I don't know if I signed up for even more hassle and hatred from the government. You know, I've got enough of that already, and now I've got to deal with all these Gentiles too. Oy vey. <laughs> well, add to that this whole, you know, all those church problems, add to that just the daily struggles of living in a city of, a million, of over a million people living basically on top of each other with none of the current uh, conveniences that we have. I mean, they're just, they're living in high-rise apartments and no, no plumbing you can imagine. So life is pretty hard, and um, it's quite a challenge for them both as individuals and collectively as the church. They, they just were trying to hang on and try to see what the point of all this really is. Well, one of the common themes of humanity has to be the universal nature of human suffering. You know, it looks different from era to era, from place to place, but the fact that we see trouble and suffering all around us and that we even experience it ourselves uh, on a pretty regular basis is just obvious. It's undeniable. Not only is it a common um, common thing to experience for all of us, it's also this huge stumbling block for non-believers, and I'm going to say for believers as well, believers who are just kind of hanging on to their faith by just this thread. Because at best, we can see it sometimes that God is, though God is supposed to be good, 
and all-powerful and in charge of the world, and yet all of these bad things are happening. I mean, exactly what kind of God is it that would allow gross injustices and pain to be so prevalent? That would allow the innocent to suffer in ways that are so obviously unjust? And by the way, isn't following God supposed to make life easier, make life better? So what's up with that? What's the problem? Is God just uncaring? Or is he just not able to do anything about it? Or maybe more to the point, does he even exist? Those of us who ask those kinds of questions do so from places that we cannot ignore because they're honest questions. They are questions that go down deep into the core of what it means to be human. Is there really meaning to life? Is there meaning to why we suffer? How is it that some people endure suffering and still are able to live lives full of joy and meaning while others go through the same thing or maybe even less and find themselves in cycles of despair and discouragement and end up living lives that look more like death than they do life? We probably all know of people who react to the struggles of life in somewhat unhealthy ways, always seeing the worst in every situation, allowing negativity and worry to consume what would otherwise be perfectly good days. They get wrapped up in the bad things that they think are going to happen tomorrow. I can remember back then uh, when one of our boys, uh, I'll leave him nameless at this point, but one of our two boys was in high school. Uh, he's a teenager. He would often worry and dread when some upcoming event, you know, all the time. He'd, he would think the worst that was going to happen because he had decided that the worst was going to happen. Well, Melinda and I would just have to keep from laughing at him when he would rationalize his negative um, attitude by saying, well, I have to assume it's going to be the worst because then whatever happens will be better. Well, in the meantime, he's ruined, you know, the month that he was ahead of him. He was looking forward to it. Um, well, fortunately, uh, I can testify he has matured out of that way of thinking. But for a while, it was kind of this thing that we had to deal with in our family. We had to kind of raise him out of that, change his perspective on how he saw things. Now, that's a really minor example, and that's really more about pessimism than it is about the reality of suffering. But I think it is important for us to realize that our attitudes and our perspectives really do play a pretty big role in learning how to live and suffer well. You can all probably think of people who, um, your own examples of people, and maybe it's even you, who struggle to deal with the bad stuff that happens in everyday life when it actually does happen. You know, so often we are tempted when all the bad stuff happens to blame God or just to live lives of cynicism, just allow that to take over our lives. Or maybe uh, we are tempted to deal with the junk in life by the abuse or misuse of drugs or alcohol or anything else for that matter that God meant for good, but now we abuse it in ways to try to cope. You know, those are all pretty common ways that the world deals with junk. But is there another way? Does following Jesus really make any difference in the hardness of life? Is there any good news for the world in regard to our family? Well, I think Paul, in this passage in Romans 5, is answering pretty boldly. He is answering, yes, there is some good news. Paul makes the case that, we, if, that if we suffer faithfully through our trials, it does something to us or does something for us. It's a way, it has a way of producing what he calls perseverance or patience and endurance in our lives. And then he's bold enough to say, that's not enough, that's not all, I should say. But um, it also goes on to produce character 
And the Greek word that he uses for build for character uh, is a, an allusion. He alludes to a process of refining uh, metal. This process of melting down metal and then what's literally left over from that trial by fire is the best, the purest of the metal. And I think by using that analogy, Paul is assuring us that there is something about the testing, that going through the testing, that can bring out the best in us. But then Paul doesn't even stop there. He's bold enough to claim that the outcome of that character building is hope. Hope that God is, in, is at work in all of our stuff. That there is actually something going on. He's doing something in the midst of our pain. Now, by that, I, I don't want to imply or uh, leave the impression that I believe God intentionally sends or causes those hardships. That idea, though it's popular in uh, some Christian circles, it troubles me because it makes God the source of pain and injustice. And that's just not the God that I see in the story or the narrative of Scripture. But what I do believe Paul is saying is not that God is the cause of the pain, but that God is involved in the result and the outcome. He is not absent when we go through our trials. It's actually just the opposite. He's at work in us to bring about outcomes of endurance and character and hope. In other words, God can and does take the garbage that we deal with and works through it to make us more like Christ. I think that's got to be what he means a couple of chapters later in Romans 8 when he says, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him. For he knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. So when we suffer, I think Paul is saying there's a real sense in which we are joining with Christ and learning to submit. And we are learning obedience through it all. A little bit later on in the New Testament in Hebrews, the Hebrews writer says this about Jesus. He says, even though Jesus Christ, Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And if you think back to the Gospels, Jesus one time said, um, no servant is above his master. In other words, if I'm going to be subjected to suffering, suffering of the human condition, you are too. And then Paul and the Hebrew writer will come along and say, and if he suffered and learned obedience from it, we can too. Christ has gone ahead of us uh, and suffered faithfully, even to the point of death. And by doing so, he overcame it. So can we. Not only does he rescue us from death in the future, but I think he redeems the suffering that we experience in our lives right now. So from this perspective, suffering can now be endured for what can become of it. Or maybe it's better to say what we can become from it. But that still begs the question, how does all that happen? Is it just a matter of being optimistic and having a better positive mental attitude. Let's go back to the text just a second. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. In that passage, I think Paul is saying that because our true identity is found in God through Christ, we can see and perceive and endure things from a whole new perspective. We no longer have to suffer as though we have no hope because we now understand suffering as a way to become more like Christ. 
And we do so with the hope that one day all things will be made right. And we will enjoy the glory of God in infinitely more intense ways than we do here and now. In his book, um, Simply Jesus, N.T. Wright makes a couple of statements I'm going to read to you that I think is helpful. Wright says, Jesus spoke and acted in such a way as to imply that he was to go ahead of his people to meet the powers of destruction in person, to take their full weight on himself so as to make a way through, a way in which God's people could be renewed, could rediscover their vocation to be a light to the nations and be rescued from their continuing slavery and exile. And a little bit later in the book, he'll say, Jesus is Lord, but it's the crucified Jesus who is Lord. Precisely because it's his crucifixion that has won the victory over all the other powers that think of themselves as in charge of the world. But that means that his followers, charged with implementing his victory in the world, will themselves have to do so by the same method. One of the most striking things about some of the later material in the New Testament is the constant theme of suffering. Suffering not as something merely to be bravely born for Jesus' sake, but as something that is mysteriously taken up into the redemptive suffering of Jesus himself. He won the victory through suffering. His followers win theirs through sharing in his. When we are grounded in our true identity in Christ, we experience suffering and everything else for that matter in an entirely new way. And actually, that's one reason why I asked that we read the Nicene Creed tonight as part of our service. Because for 1,700 years, the Creed has given words to Christians to help them express or state their faith, something to, to cling on to, to remember uh, their common identity as followers of Christ. And I think that's why it has been and still is recited so regularly among so many groups of Christians in their weekly gatherings. Because I think remembering who we are and with whom we identify is key to living and suffering well.
That is a scene from uh, the Academy Award winning Best Picture uh, this year called 12 Years a Slave. And if you're worried about spoiler alert, the title of the movie kind of gives away what happens. Guy's a slave for 12 years. Um, and it, it's not for the faint of heart by any means. Um, it, it is a graphic depiction of the torture and abuse that slaves experienced in the American South in the 1800s. And it follows the true account of a man named Solomon Northup, who was a free African-American man who lived in New York with his family. And he was abducted and sold into slavery in the South in the 1840s. And uh, in this scene, one of their fellow slaves, the the day before that very day had passed out and died in the cotton field because he was so exhausted and overworked and undernourished. And of all of the things that this community of, of plantation slaves could do, they gather around this burial plot you see in the scene and they began singing this spiritual roll, Jordan, roll. Roll, Jordan roll. My soul arise to heaven for the year when Jordan roll. That song is an allusion to the Jordan River. It's found all throughout Scripture. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan in the Old Testament. The people of God um, saw the Jordan River as the last obstacle on the way to the Promised Land. It was across the Jordan River, and there you had Canaan. The promised land. And perhaps there are echoes in this song at the time when God rolled back the Jordan River and Joshua led the people across the Jordan River, the dry bed. They were coming out of slavery from Egypt and into the promised land in Canaan. This, this story is a way that the African-American slaves could subvert the powers that be to say that these circumstances don't have the last word. That, that justice will be established someday. And uh, you see Solomon in this, in this picture. He's not singing at first. And all of a sudden, something gives way in him. And he starts mumbling and then singing, roll, Jordan, roll. And before you know it, he's belting like a blues singer. Roll, Jordan, roll. And what, what is it that, uh, that gives way in him, that brings this song out of him? After, after all the torture, after all the suffering, after, after being, being verbally, verbally and physically abused, how is he able to sing this song of hope? Why is he not overwhelmed by despair and fear and resignation? Well, it's because he knows his true identity. He knows who he really is. He is a free man and he has a family in the north, a wife and children who are waiting for him to get home. And, and whether or not he ever sees his family again, whether or not he's ever free again, it is that vision of reality that moves him and motivates him. 
to live in hope rather than despair. I think this is such a wonderful image of what it looks like to suffer well. Rather than allowing suffering to to beat us down and to get caught and snared in the bitterness that leads to fear, that leads to despair, uh, we find our identity in God and in Jesus. And that produces this peace, this, this character, this hope in us that sustains us even when things don't go our way. So my question um, for all of us today is, what is your role, Jordan, role? What, what do you do when you experience suffering that anchors you in your identity in God? What is your role, Jordan, role? For some people, it's music. For other people, it's silence. Meditation. It's a, a gratitude journal, writing things you're, you're thankful for, um, reading scripture um, every day, uh, any number of things. There's not one thing that we do to, to, to get at this role, Jordan role, but all of us uh, need to have some way to remind ourselves when we suffer of our true identity so that we can suffer well and suffer with faith rather than suffer Poorly and, and end up in despair. If you have your own role, Jordan role, are you engaging it regularly? Are you connecting to God? Are you connecting to the source of your identity? If you don't have your own role, Jordan role, what next step can you take to find one, to give voice to your faith in the midst of suffering? I think it's Romans 5.11 that says that we can rejoice because of the right relationship that we have with God. Because in Jesus, God makes us friends with him. We're, we're made friends with God. I want to invite Julie to come up and share a testimony tonight. This is my beautiful wife, y'all. Uh, she's going to share a, a testimony briefly about how she is learning to suffer better, suffer well. It's a very small story compared to slavery and um, other people suffering, but it's my story, and uh, and it's a story I want to with God through. Um, I've said it a lot, and most of y'all know um, that this past fall when I was pregnant, um, I went to the doctor on October 17th, and she said, you know, your blood pressure is too high. It's time for you to go on bed rest. And um, so I went home and tried that for a few days. And then a couple days later, um, I knew my blood pressure was really high at home. So she sent me on into the hospital. And I, I thought, you know, I bet they'll keep me for a few hours and get everything stabilized. And then, you know, I'll go back home. And I didn't know that when I went in um, that afternoon, on October 19th, that I would not go back home until December 3rd, um, about six and a half or seven weeks later. And my time there, um, when I was journaling about this, uh, thinking about what I was going to say, um, thinking about the ways that I, I suffered, which that word seems very, very small <laughs> after I think about slaves being whipped, but this is my story. Um, I had lots of lonely nights and crying, being alone. Um, you know, I maybe had visitors for an hour or two a day, and then the other 
however many hours I was awake, I was just staring at the walls, missing my family, my kids, Charles, my home, um, knowing the stress of medical bills, of me not working, not making money, um, the toll it was taking I knew on my extended family that was helping us with childcare and um, keeping the house running. I felt so responsible for, I guess, the sacrifices everybody else was making. Um, just felt help- helpless when I hear the kids crying on the phone that they miss me, missing school programs and plays, Halloween, sitting in my hospital room on Thanksgiving. Um, all of those things were um, just really difficult times, real dark times for me. I just would stare at the calendar on my wall and cross off days. You know, I would, at 8 o'clock every night was when I would cross that day off on the calendar. Sometimes I'd be like, I'm cross the day off, now I'm going to wait till 8 o'clock, I'm going to cross the day off. And I just one week, two weeks, three weeks, crossing them all off. Then the week before Thanksgiving, um, my mom's sister got admitted to the ICU, um, having what we now know as a stroke. And then the Friday before Thanksgiving, we got word that our sweet Clancy um, had been killed in a car wreck in Lubbock. And while Charles is trying to fly back from that funeral, they tell me, it's time to go. You know, your blood pressure's high. We need to go ahead and have this. And me saying, you know, my husband's at a funeral. Is there any way we could wait for him to get back? And, you know, at that point, it was just like, seriously, God? Like, enough with the patience and affliction. Like, our family feels attacked and burdened, and we need you to do something. Um, so Charles got to the hospital right before Charlotte was born. Um, you know, there in time for him to go in with me and say, it's a girl, we didn't know. And we thought, man, that's it, we've made it, we've put our time in, suffering, like we're going home, everything's going to be happy now. And we didn't know that in the following few days, our faith and trust in God would really reach some breaking points. Um, instead of the downhill slope that we hoped for, my blood pressure kept spiking and soaring and refused to respond to as many as half a dozen medications in my IV at one time. And they would give me something and say, oh, this will do it. This is really strong medicine. There's no way this won't work. And then a couple hours would go by, no difference. And just seeing the look on the doctors and the nurses' faces, it was just crushing. And it was so discouraging. Um, you know, Charles and I held hands and just sat in silence. I mean, we didn't really talk. We tried to watch a movie, and we just turned it off because we couldn't focus on anything. I, I truly wondered, am I going to go home? Am I going to have a stroke and die here? Like, you know, am I ever going to get to go home? And so when the cardiologist came on the scene and said, you know, we've got to get this under control so we don't have a heart attack on our hands, um, things really turned around. That was a real instrumental day for us. We prayed and prayed, and I will never forget when the nurses said, you can go home. But that was a great, great day of joy for us. We know, like what Romans said, that we were standing confidently and joyfully, full of God's love. When we pulled up in our driveway, when I threw myself in my bed that night, it was like there was palpable joy in our home, like you could touch it. Um, you know, I, I think about all that time, and I just think about the endurance and the character that it built up in me, that sitting alone in a hospital room for weeks on end builds up endurance in you. And um, endurance of trust and hope and dependability and humility that, you know, watching your kids want you to come home and there's nothing that you can do, and just having to teach them to rely on God for things, lessons that you cannot teach them, that God is going to have to build inside of them. That's a very hopeless feeling. Um, something I remember God speaking to me about when I was laying in my bed night after night was how um, he was providing just what we needed during this time. And that when I got out, I made a covenant with God that I didn't want to be like the Israelites anymore, who when God provided for them um, abundantly, they would get it and it was never enough and they would go right back to worrying about how was he going to provide for them again. And I made a covenant with God there that you know, I would endure through difficult times of suffering or provision 
remembering what he had done and not so easily forgetting and going back to um, such a place of anxiety or worry all the time. Um, you know, and I think, I wish that I could have learned these lessons about suffering just from reading my Bible and, and thinking, you know, I can, I can endure and I can, but they're just not coming to saying they're not lessons that you can learn unless you're refined like metal in the fire. And I, I think as parents, sometimes even with my kids, I think, you know, I, I don't want my kids to get made fun of or suffer or to ever be left out or to hurt. You know, I wish I could protect them from that. But it's only when you're a kid, you watch them, you know, be left out or get their feelings hurt or made fun of that they learn how to treat other children, I think, with that love and compassion that they learn from their own suffering. And I, I know that's how much God is speaking to us through this Romans passage that, you know, Christ did not, we don't have that example from Christ, that he, you know, just patted us from up there and said, you know, suffer and build up perseverance, but that he came, and alongside his suffering, that's how we learn um, to stand with him. And so when I, when I think about my, my days in the hospital, I don't think, I mean, that was for nothing. I wish I could have just learned that by, you know, reading this. Or, and, I, and I certainly had a great outcome. You know, I, I know that we have friends struggling in the hospital right now with very sick babies that they may not have the positive outcome that we did. And, um, and I pray that when we have times of suffering where the ending is not happy and joyful, that um, God has refined us enough that we can, we can stand with him and trust because we've, we've had times of this endurance being built up.